Psalm 37, all 40 verses, please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. For he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. 
but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to break this down into four parts for those of you who are taking notes. We're actually seeking to answer the main question before us this morning, the title of the sermon, where will we stand in troubled times? We're going to look at that in four parts. First, we're going to see how not to stand in troubled times. How not to stand in troubled times. When you're reading the Bible and you see something repeated often, especially in a short space, you want to pay attention, right? The psalm here begins with a negative command. Fret not. You look down at verse 7 and the second line of verse 7. It's repeated again. Fret not. Second line of verse 8. Fret not. This word here literally means don't get heated. Or in our modern slang, we could say, chill out or cool your jets, right? Don't get worked up. Don't get heated. Don't fret. Well, what are we told not to fret over? Let's look at it. Verse 1, fret not yourself because of evil doers. Verse 7, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices. Verse 8, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Verse 8, we see here that our fretting over these things is sinful, and it leads to evil, and it's connected very much with the first part of verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Right? Don't be angry, angry. Don't, be, don't be wrathful, don't get heated about these things. It is only going to lead you down an evil road. But the beauty and the wisdom of this psalm is that it doesn't just give us some pithy sayings and tips about how to live a better life. You can go and pick up any of the self-help books on the shelf at Walmart and all the new age gurus and all the lying wolves dressed like Christian sheep are trying to feed you the same garbage They're not being honest with you about your own sin like God is here in this psalm through the pen of David. They're not saying that your envy of those who get ahead in the world by unrighteous means will eat your soul away because it will. They want you to try and achieve and be successful and chase your dreams just like the world does. And God says, don't do it. It will destroy your soul. And the reason is given here in verse 2 and verse 9. Right after the commands to not fret and to not be envious, we are told of their fate. For they, the evildoers and the wrongdoers, they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Verse 9, we're told not to fret. And then it says, for evildoers shall be cut off. 
We'll come back to this a bit in our third section as we discuss some practical applications of this. But this is the main thrust of this psalm as it is addressing how God's people can survive and can keep pressing on in this world where it feels like you're never going to get ahead if you do the right thing. So we're told how not to stand. Then we're told how to stand in times of trouble. Now that David has gotten our attention, right, with these negative commands, not to fret, not to to get heated, he flips the script and he gives us a whole bunch of positive commands here, which are clearly contrasted with the way of the wicked and the evil. Now, scattered throughout this psalm, there are actually 15 commands, 15 positive commands, and nine of them come right here in verses 3 to 7, which is a key section because it comes, again, between those two negative commands, don't fret, in verse 1, and then don't fret in verses 7 and 8. We have these bookends. In between it, we're told what we should do by not fretting and how we should live. And again, as we see these commands, you'll recognize, if you're familiar with the Psalms, these are things that are common throughout all of the Psalms. Look first at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord I mean, that's a very just basic and common command, right? That the people of God are told over and over to do throughout the Psalms, throughout the Proverbs. Trust in the Lord. Dwell in the land. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Just there's four commands right there in that first verse. Verse four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The verse gets abused a lot and, and misapplied. It doesn't mean just do whatever you want to do, right? And God will just make you happy when you're doing what your own desires are. No, delight in him and he will put right desires in your heart. Desires for him, desires for things that are pleasing to him. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Again, trust in him and he will act. This, this word in the Hebrew here for commit your way is interesting. It literally means, we can literally translate it to roll your way over to the Lord. It's to like cast off your burdens, to, to roll the things that are weighing you down over onto the Lord. So commit your way to him. And then verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. I love verse 7 here because it highlights the intensity of trusting in the Lord and delighting in him and committing our ways to him. That first command there, be still, means exactly what you would expect it to mean. It's to be silent, it's to be motionless, it's to, to stand still or be rigid, right? Be still before the Lord. Be quiet, right? Listen to him. But you know what wait patiently means? It has the meaning of looking forward with expectation. Some Bible translations say, wait expectantly. And this this word in other places in the Old Testament is actually the word that is used to translate labor or giving birth. That's what it feels like sometimes waiting on the Lord, doesn't it? I've never given birth myself. That's probably quite obvious, but I have assisted uh, several times. And those last few hours can feel like an eternity, right? Ladies, amen? (laughs) It can feel like an eternity, waiting patiently, waiting expectantly for the baby to come. And I think as we think about waiting on God, waiting patiently on God, sometimes it can feel like an eternity, right? 
it can feel like we're agon- actually that word other times again that wait, waiting patiently it's translated as agonizing right? it can be agonizing it can feel like a, a horrible time right to be waiting for the lord to be agonizing and wondering when is help coming when is this deliverance coming i think this is this can be one of the greatest challenges in our christian lives waiting on god right waiting for him to act when we feel like Everything is against us when we feel like nothing is going the way that we hoped. Again, and this is not just a passive waiting. There are things that we are to do as we wait. Look at verse 27. Turn away from evil and do good. This is just the flip side, the opposite side of the coin as from verse 3 said, right, trust in the Lord and do good. This says, turn away from evil and do good. So what do we see here in these verses? What principles do we see at play in these two verses? It's faith and repentance, right? Trust God, turn to him in faith, and turn away from evil. That's repentance. Turning to God in faith turning away from our sin and away from evil and repentance, all the while doing good. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer number 85 because it addresses this topic. The question is, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to sin? The answer, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, and repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Now what in the world does that mean, the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates, us, communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Well, this is what we call the, the ordinary means of grace, It's the word and sacraments and prayer. So how do we learn what is good and how do we learn to do that good? It's by being in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, turning from our sins and trusting in him alone, and then by seeking him in prayer, seeking him through the reading of his word, attending and participating in worship as his word is preached, as the sacraments are administered, which we'll do today as we're having a baptism and observing the Lord's Supper. And then we're brought back again here in Psalm 37 to this idea of waiting. Look at verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. This harkens back to verse 9, and it highlights another major theme in this psalm, which leads us into our third section. And that is that wicked people, that evildoers, will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. So the next thing we're going to see, our next section, is who will stand in troubled times? Now really, from verse 9 on until the end of the psalm, Almost every verse mentions either the righteous or the wicked. And there is this constant contrast between two types of people and two ways to live that 
are front and center here in Psalm 37. And it's really played out throughout the entire psalm. And really, that's the heartbeat of the entire collection of 150 psalms. And the foundation is laid for us right off the bat in Psalm 1. I would invite you to turn back to Psalm 1. Uh, just keep a finger there in Psalm 37. Again, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 serve as an introduction to the entire collection of psalms. Just look at Psalm 1 here. Verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So from the very beginning of this entire collection of songs that is the people of Israel would use in worship, there is an immediate contrast set up between two types of people, between two ways of living. There's one who delights in the Lord, right, and meditates on his way, and there's the wicked and evil, which we'll see in a little bit here. Then verse 3, we get this great picture of what the person who delights in the Lord is like. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You want the prosperity gospel? There you go, right there. That's the prosperity gospel. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So already we're seeing this picture, right? The, the righteous are going to stand strong, and the wicked are going to be blown away. Verses 5 and 6, who will stand? Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the, of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And the answer to the question, who will stand, is clear. And David is hammering it home here in Psalm 37. The wicked will come to an end, and those who wait for the Lord and trust in Him will inherit the land. This is not teaching some idea that we're actually going to physically inherit some plot of land in Israel. Rather, this is a picture of the final judgment when the wicked will be no more, when they will be cut off from God forever in hell. And those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus will dwell with him forever in the better country that Hebrews 11 talks about, when it talks about Abraham and the Old Testament saints who looked forward to this land while acknowledging that they were strangers and exiles here on this earth. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, do we have this same longing? Is there a profound and true sense of dissatisfaction with our lives on this earth because we know that something more glorious awaits us? And yet that dissatisfaction is recognized as something that should drive us to the Lord. Drive us to Him to wait more expectantly, to trust more, to turn away from evil more frequently, to stand like the tree planted by streams of water as we draw our nourishment from the streams of God's grace and mercy that have been poured out on us in Christ. Which leads us to our final section and our final question. And that's our main question. Where will we stand in troubled times? Now, there's another interesting connection here with Psalm 1. 
That imagery of the tree in Psalm 1 appears here in Psalm 37, although it has the opposite message. Look at verses 35 and 36. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. The person who looks like they're succeeding in life while completely ignoring the Lord and his ways, they will disappear in an instant. So stop envying that tree that looks healthy from a distance while it's rotting away on the inside. Had an interesting kind of experience with this. Uh, my dad used to be a logger, and my dad is amazing with trees. He can, like, spot any tree, tell you what kind of tree it is. He knows all about He's done some just crazy work in crazy places, cutting trees down. When we were back uh, on furlough in 2011, we were living in La Crosse. We were two houses down from some of our best friends and, and mentors, uh, living right on Lake on Alaska in this great house. And uh, the people who uh, owned the house lived on the other side of the, of the Mississippi in Minnesota, and, and they weren't there very often, so they let us stay there for a couple months. And they came over one day, and, and we were in the backyard, and they were talking to me about the, there's two trees in the yard. One was kind of facing the neighbor's house, and one was facing their own house. And they were like, yeah, you know, we're kind of thinking about taking that tree down. I said, well, my dad used to be a logger, and he's coming to visit. I'll have him look at it and, you know, tell you what he thinks. And he came, and immediately he's like, oh, that tree needs to get cut down, like, yesterday. You know, it, like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall on the house if there's a big storm. Um. And the other one was, like, kind of bad, but not, like, not as bad. Well, we went back to China and uh, got an email from our friends a couple months later. Tree right on the house. Crashed right through the room that Lindsay and I slept in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just, it was amazing to see, like, from a distance, if you would have stood, like, you know, 20 feet away and looked at that, this big, beautiful tree, there, you know, the there wasn't, it wasn't rotting away, there were the, the, it was full leaves, but there was just, there was some rotting kind of right in the crotch of the tree where this big branch came out, and that's where my dad said, this, this thing's going down, and sure enough, it did, right? Well, this takes us back to the beginning of the psalm. Don't fret. When you look from a distance and you see that branch, when you see that tree that looks healthy, when you see that the wickedness that is prospering when you see the person who looks like they're standing strong, don't fret because they're about to go over, right? It might look good on the outside, but those who hate God and those who gain in this world through unjust matters and unjust means, they will not stand in troubled times. We can be assured of that. David makes one last appeal then to us in our observation of the world around us in verses 37 and 38 before his grand finale in verses 39 and 40. Verse 37, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. These words here, mark and behold, can be translated consider and observe. Look at the man of peace, Look to the person who is trusting in the Lord, the one who is upright. There is a future for that person. But, but, the transgressors shall be 
altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. So notice the contrast there between two types of futures. And, and this is a warning for us. It's a contrast between two types of futures. One who will stand, one person who will stand, and one who will not. So the question for us is, which one will we be? Which tree will we be? Will we be the tree that is planted in the Lord? Or will we be the tree that seeks our own glory and seeks our own ways in this world by wicked means? David lays this out beautifully in the last two verses as he brings this back and forth contrast between the righteous and the wicked to a close. Verses 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time, the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The focus here is entirely on the Lord. He is the stronghold. He is the helper, the deliverer, the one who saves those who take refuge in him. Again, this is a major theme of the Psalms playing out here. It's a theme that was introduced in Psalm 2. We saw Psalm 2. We looked at Psalm 2, the first psalm that we did this summer. And the last line of Psalm 2 is, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Right? Psalm 1 started out, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked. Psalm 2 ends, so there's these bookends on Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Blessed is the man who takes refuge refuge in him. This is the type of person who can withstand the storms of this world. Not because they're strong, but because they're trusting and refuging in the one who makes them strong. The one and the only one who can help them and deliver them. I wonder how aware we are of our desperate need for help and deliverance that can only come from the Lord. Have we really had our faith tested in a way where we had to make a clear declaration that our hope for deliverance is only in the Lord? I love the accounts of the three young Hebrew boys, friends of Daniel's, who upon Daniel's promotion after interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, They were appointed at Daniel's request to oversee the affairs of the entire province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, who had just declared to Daniel in chapter 2, when he said, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Well, this earthly king was simply giving lip service to the God of gods and Lord of kings because immediately in chapter 3, he constructs a 90-foot tall golden statue and he sent out his heralds to proclaim in all the land. He said, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. If you remember the story, all the people in all the land, they fall down and worship the image, except the three young Hebrew boys 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And very quickly, some tattletales go out to the king and remind the king of his edict and how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pay no attention to the king and they don't worship his gods. The king flies into a rage and commands them to come before him, which they do. He gives them another chance to bow down before the image and he reminds them of their fate if they do not comply to his orders. Then he asks this question, which you'll see hopefully how I'm tying this back to Psalm 37 verse 40. He asks this question about the Lord delivering and saving them, or this, this tied back to Psalm 34, 37 40, about the Lord delivering and saving us from the wicked. His question is, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He is defying God here. The very God that he just gave lip service to in the previous chapter, right? He is defying him here. He's saying, you little punks, like you think you can defy me and you think your God is going to save you, right? Who is this God? You know how they respond? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, chapter 3. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is not some cute little story for a Sunday school lesson. This is a matter of life and death. We are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego every days of our lives in this world that wants us to bow down and pay homage to the false gods all around us and threatens us constantly. Maybe not with actual physical death and a fiery furnace, but with shame and ridicule and mocking for saying that we believe in a God who can deliver us out of this world's hands. As Christians, we must learn to approach our lives in this world with this mindset. We must be able to say along with the Hebrew boys, but if not, even if we are not delivered from physical death, we will not bow down and serve the false gods of this world. How does our response, brothers and sisters, in the face of evil serve as a witness to the watching world that we are trusting in a deliverance that comes from without and not from within? Now, I want to get real practical here for a minute because it's something that we've all been talking about over the last weeks and months. I've already stated clearly, publicly, I'll say it again, I don't like the mask mandate, right? Not a fan of it. I'm willing to personally comply. I'm willing to ask those of you who are able to comply because I believe it is our proper Christian response, especially in light of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. This week I sent out an email link to uh, Pastor Bob Holda's sermon from Resurrection Presbyterian Church. Uh, If you haven't got a chance to listen to that yet, or if you're not yet on our email list, let me know. I can send that to you or direct you to it. 
And I also mentioned in that email that I'd be talking a little bit about civil disobedience this morning. So here we go, right? I don't believe wearing masks in our services for nine weeks is the equivalent of bowing down to King Nebuchadnezzar's 90-foot statue. You might disagree, and you feel free to disagree, but I don't think we're there yet. I also want to say that I'm not afraid of what could possibly be coming as a follow-up. I'm not talking about mandates from Governor Evers. I'm talking about the direction of our culture. I'm talking about hostility toward the church, hostility toward Christianity. And this should not surprise us, even in America. This should not surprise us if things go in a very bad direction. It's kind of what Jesus talked about a lot of times, right? We shouldn't be surprised. I want to share a little bit of my own story, and I do this with a little bit of reservation because I'm not trying to bring attention to myself here, but I do want to give a little insight into how I'm approaching these things and how I'm anticipating things that might be coming. I lived with my family for 10 years, raised most of our kids in a communist country. I ministered illegally. I preached illegally in underground house churches. One time I was meeting, uh, preaching at a church service with a, a very good friend of mine, a, a pastor friend. Uh, their church met in a hotel uh, on the, I think like the third floor in the, in the meeting room of the hotel. And I was up front before the service. I think it was the first time I was preaching in a, in a, in a Chinese church, preaching in Mandarin. I was super nervous. I was up front. I was just praying and I was like, just crying out to God for help. And I like had this thought like, oh, like, the cops could come in at any moment, and I'd be, we'd be gone. Like, I'd literally have to, like, go home and pack up my things, and I'd be kicked out of the country. Um, and the Lord kind of smacked me upside the head and said, like, you're more worried about getting kicked out of the country than you are about the reality of standing up here in front of these people bringing the word of God, right? But still, in that moment, there was a very, a very real realization that, like, I'm breaking the law, right? And I could... I could get kicked out of the country for this. So I don't have a problem with civil disobedience, okay? Actually, a few weeks later, uh, their church did get busted. Uh, they got kicked out. Of the people from the hotel found out that what was going on, or the authorities found out. They all got questioned. The pastor got questioned. He, he was, got asked if there was, like, foreign financial aid and all this stuff. They probably knew that I was involved in some way. And as I've mentioned to you guys, a lot of our friends have been getting kicked out lately, and the situation is, is very, very bleak uh, in China in, in human terms. But I want to say that if an ungodly and evil world wants to come after us, bring it on. We're not afraid because our hope is not in this world, but it's in the one who came into this world to live and to die in our place so that he might deliver us from sin and death and Satan and free us to live without fear in this world, even when evil and, and wickedness is all around us. So I ask us this morning, where will we stand in troubled times? And are we prepared to take a stand in troubled times? As a church and as individuals, are we ready to defy the kingdom of this world and proclaim our allegiance to another kingdom? 
we have an opportunity this morning to witness and participate in two statements of allegiance to one kingdom and defiance of another. Here they are, right here in the sacraments. In the first couple centuries of the church, these things would have communicated to the world around the message, here we stand. Go ahead. Throw us in the fire. Throw us to the lions. Put us up on stakes and light our bodies to to light your gardens, Nero, right? Bring it on. We serve another king and another kingdom. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God will deliver us. Which he did, right? Remember the story? King Nebuchadnezzar heated the fire to seven times its normal heat, threw the boys in the fire. Listen to what happened next. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own God. That is a profound realization on his part. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, notice the reversal of of what happened before. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb to limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, that decree and that promotion were great, right? As long as they lasted. But keep reading in the book of Daniel. See the overthrow and the instability of the kingdoms of this world. And then recognize and confess that there is only one kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that is Christ's where he reigns as the only sovereign ruler. It is to him and him alone that we must bow in allegiance. And praise God, again, we get to see that pictured here today in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So let me pray, and then I will invite Vanessa up. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these promises to us. Thank you for these reminders that you are our deliverer, God, that we have no hope 
but you. We are to trust in you. We are to turn away from evil. We are to wait patiently upon you, God, for you are our king and you are our deliverer. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.